Welcome to the Preacher Girl Podcast. I'm Diane Wright, and today's talk was originally shared on January 29th, 2012, at St. John's Unitarian Church in Cincinnati. The first reading this morning is from Heracliotos of Ephesus. Whosoever wishes to know about the world must learn about it in its particular details. Knowledge is not intelligence. In searching for the truth, be ready for the unexpected. Change alone is unchanging. The same road goes both up and down. The beginning of a circle is also its end. Not I, but the world, says it. All is one, and yet everything comes in season. The children's story comes from the book Kindness, a book of Buddhist children's stories gathered by Sarah Conover, and the story is entitled When the Horse Runs Off. Long ago, in a country where the mountains are among the world's loftiest, there lived an old farmer and his son. The boy spent his days attending to the work of the farm and their one horse, a beautiful white stallion. After years of careful training, the horse ran swifter and smoother than any other in the region. But one day, father and son awoke to find their cherished animal missing. The son was heartbroken. Neighbors gathered round the two and lamented their great loss. But the father gazed calmly past the villagers to the surrounding high peaks. We shall see, he said. We shall see if this is good or if this is bad. After a week, the magnificent horse returned, followed by an equally fine wild mare. Father and son soon tamed the new animal. This time, the neighbors praised the old man's remarkable luck. He was now the wealthiest man in town. He owned the two very best horses. But the father simply smiled and remarked, oh, Of course, I'm pleased. But who knows if this is lucky or unlucky? And so it came to pass that one day, while racing their splendid horses across the field, the sun fell off and broke both legs very badly. While the boy's wounds were cleaned and splinted by the doctor, the villagers bemoaned the family's terrible misfortune. But the father, calm as ever, took comfort in his boy. He's alive, that's all that counts, replied the old man. His legs will heal in time. I cannot know if these injuries will turn out to be something good or something bad. The very next week, a battalion of soldiers marched into the village. A war to the north was underway, and all the young men of fighting age were needed immediately. Mothers and fathers gathered food and warm clothing for their boys. With sorrowful goodbyes, they reluctantly let their sons join the soldiers. But alas, there was one boy in the village left behind in his bed, for it was obvious his wounds would take many months to heal. The neighbors envied the farmer's good fortune. Of all the young men in town, his son was the only one not taken to war. The old farmer looked out across his fields at the two fine horses grazing. He looked at the lovely way the sun caught the tops of the jagged peaks in the distance, and he smiled, and he said nothing at all. 
The second reading is called The Spirituality of Transfiguration, and it's from the book Anamkara by John O'Donohue. Spirituality is the art of transfiguration. We should not force ourselves to change by hammering our lives into any predetermined shape. We do not need to operate according to the idea of a predetermined program or plan for our lives. Rather, we need to practice a new art of attention to the inner rhythm of our days and lives. This attention brings a new awareness of our own human and divine presence. A dramatic example of this kind of transfiguration is one all parents know. You watch your children carefully, but one day they surprise you. You still recognize them, but your knowledge of them is insufficient. You have to start listening to them all over again. It is far more creative to work with the idea of mindfulness rather than the idea of will. Too often, people try to change their lives by using the will as a kind of hammer to beat their life into proper shape. The intellect identifies the goal of the program, and the will accordingly forces the life into that shape. This way of approaching the sacredness of one's own presence is externalist and violent. It brings you falsely outside yourself, and you can spend years lost in the wildernesses of your own mechanical spiritual programs. You can perish in a famine of your own making. If you work with a different rhythm, you will come easily and naturally home to yourself. Your soul knows the geography of your destiny. Your soul alone has the map of your destiny. Therefore, you can trust this indirect, oblique side of yourself. If you do, it will take you where you need to go. But more important, it will teach you a kindness of rhythm in your journey. There are no general principles for this art of being. But if you attend to yourself and seek to come into your own presence, you will find exactly the right rhythm for your own life. Making room. Lots of change in our lives and little change in our pockets. This month, I started teaching an online course for undergraduate social work students at a local university. The course is on compassion, empathy, and forgiveness. And in one of the assignments, I asked the students to think about situations where they might find it difficult to feel compassion towards someone. One of the students was very vehement when she said she has trouble being compassionate toward people who make the same bad choices more than once without learning from their first mistake. Her response made me think about a new social worker I was supervising for a while. I kept receiving calls from her clients, and they would say, she just doesn't care about me. She just isn't helping me. As I explored this situation with the clinician, she would often tell me things like, well, I told that client what she needed to do, and she didn't do it so I figured she didn't want to change. It didn't take very long for the two of us to figure out that community mental health wasn't a good fit for her. She was feeling as frustrated as her clients were. And as I think about her style, I can't help hearing John O'Donohue's words. 
Too often, people try to change their lives by using the will as a kind of hammer to beat their life into proper shape. The intellect identifies the goal of the program, and the will accordingly forces the life into that shape. And, as he points out, this hammering of a life isn't usually very effective. You can perish in a famine of your own making. Today, I'm hoping we can think a little bit about how to avoid famine. To prepare for our time together today, I've been reflecting on the topic of change. And I want to talk about two kinds of change. The changes that come at us from without and the changes that we try to bring about from within. You know what I mean when I talk about the changes that come from outside ourselves. I love that quote from the essay by Mary Schmitch of the Chicago Tribune. Her essay made the rounds of all our email boxes when someone sent it as a hoax, saying it was a commencement address Kurt Vonnegut delivered at MIT. But it was Mary. And within that essay, she had that wonderful paragraph, Don't worry about the future. Or worry, but know that worrying is as effective as trying to solve an algebra equation by chewing bubblegum. The real troubles in your life are apt to be things that never crossed your worried mind, the kind that blindside you at 4 p.m. on some idle Tuesday. These changes might take many forms. They might take the form of a sentence spoken by a doctor. You're having twins. Or, the test was positive. Or, we did everything we could. They might take the form of a corporate buyout that results in your pink slip, or the resignation of a colleague that results in your promotion. They might take the form of a landslide on the parkway that makes you miss the appointment, or the phone call that a nephew has been arrested, or the look on the plumber's face as he comes back up the basement stairs. The real troubles in your life are apt to be things that never crossed your worried mind. What does it take to learn the lesson from that farmer? To take a deep breath when the phone call comes or the car accident happens? We walk a very narrow road between preparing and strengthening and improving ourselves and responding to the constant changes in our lives. I was talking with a friend about these topics as I prepared for today, and I asked her what it brought to mind. She smiled and she said how interesting it was to think about change in those two ways. And she said, my husband is the one who makes New Year's resolutions and plans out everything, sets goal after goal. But in the face of a big stressor from the outside, and for them, a recent example was a terrible sewage backup in their basement. He falls apart. She went on to say, but I, on the other hand, really struggle to set goals or make resolutions or make any kinds of change happen until the change is prompted by something outside myself. Then she said, for me, the sewage in the basement meant, well, I guess we're going to do that remodeling we've been thinking about for so long. Her description made me think of that little dance you can do with another person on ice skates or roller skates. 
One pulls the other, then the other pulls the first, and so on, back and forth. These two obviously balance each other well. My friend smiled even more when I shared the O'Donohue quote about the hammering. She laughed and said, that's my husband. He hammers away at his life, working toward his ideal status quo, and when a big change comes from the outside, he's all thrown off and has to work really hard to get it back to his original idea of things. She said, I, on the other hand, don't work very hard on setting goals, but when a big change happens, I'm pretty quick to settle in to the new status quo and see how it helped me move forward. Of course, I don't know his version of this story. But think for a minute, where do you fall on that continuum? Hammering away at your goals and ambitions and resolutions? Getting all riled up as changes occur? Or gazing serenely at the mountains as you consider whether this change might be lucky or unlucky? As a community, of course, we're not just the ones experiencing changes. We are the neighbors, friends, and loved ones of others who are faced with change or trying to make change happen. Whenever I read the story of the farmer with the horses, I'm always struck by the role of the neighbors. They fret and worry on the farmer's behalf when the horse runs away. Then they congratulate him and celebrate when the horse returns with a mare. Then they fret and worry when the sun falls off the horse. What do we really want from our community when change blindsides us on a Tuesday afternoon? A few years ago, my father had a stroke, and I received that call at work in the morning. I know many of you have had the experience of a call like that, the icy feeling and the numbness punctuated by pain. I'm lucky enough to have friends who jumped right in, stepping in and helping me with projects going on at work so I could leave immediately, others who stepped up to help with my family, and others who were waiting to help me up in Cleveland after the long, lonely, tearful drive. As life settled back down and my father made his recovery, I thought often of those people who supported me right away and I realized I want to always work to be that kind of friend. And if you've had a chance to help friends during some kind of emergency, you know what a privilege it is. You know how good and right it feels. And yet, when many people face a big change, they don't think to call anyone, or they haven't knitted together that social net, or the net has become unraveled. Take a moment right now to think. A call comes this afternoon about a major change, a difficult one, one of those ice in your veins, gotta go take care of it right this minute kind of change. Who are you gonna call? And if you're not sure, I know my church supports a caring circle that's charged with just this kind of thing. And what about the other side of that coin? Are we prepared to help? Albert Schweitzer said, I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I do know, the only ones among you who will be really happy 
are those who have sought and found how to serve. And yet, maybe we shiver a little when we think about sending out that bulletin saying, I am ready to help you. Because all of, all of us have had the experience of helping someone who, like my student pointed out, made the same bad mistakes more than once, sometimes a lot more than once. In the Buddhist children's book, there is another story of the famous Zen teacher Bankai. Students came from all over to his monastery for six months of study and meditation. It was a hard six months of hard work, hours of meditation, little sleep, and small spare meals. One student found that after a while, the only thing he was able to focus on was his grumbling belly. Finally, one night, he snuck into the kitchen, and the cook caught him trying to steal food. The cook promptly reported this to Bankai, who listened to the report, but continued the training as if nothing had happened. A few nights later, the student was caught again trying to steal food. This time, other students caught him and they immediately set up a petition to have the thief removed and gave it to Bankai. They said the thief must be removed or they would all leave. Bankai brought everyone into the common room and said, You all have worked hard and given up much to be here, but I will continue to teach everyone. You know the difference between right and wrong. How can I ask the thief to leave? Where else will he learn the difference? I will continue the training even if everyone else leaves and only the thief is left. Upon hearing this, the thief was so overcome by the compassion being shown to him that he went immediately to the meditation bench and began meditating. The other students talked among themselves, pondering what to do. In about an hour, when Bankai returned, the common room was so quiet that Bankai assumed all the other students must have left. But when he walked in, he saw everyone had returned. Everyone was sitting and meditating together. I like that story, because in the end, everyone has decided to, as O'Donohue would say, attend to themselves. Does all this mean that the answer is to be passive? To simply wait for each change, then adapt to it with a wait-and-see approach? I don't think so. As with so many things, I think it's all about balance. Balancing our striving with acceptance. Balancing our righteous anger with our deep breathing. Brenda Peterson, in her book, I Want to Be Left Behind, Finding Rapture Here on Earth, shares her experience of growing up in a fundamentalist Southern Baptist family, preparing for the end times, but living in the High Sierra since her father was a U.S. forest ranger. She describes the experience of falling in love with nature and starting to rebel against the idea of the rapture because she started to think the earth wasn't such a bad place. Deciding to leave behind her family's fundamentalism, she became involved in environmentalism, 
and quickly found many striking similarities between those two cultures, the first of which is humorlessness, another of which is the description of a coming apocalypse. I was so interested to hear her story because in her respectful accounts of both cultures, the fundamentalists and the environmentalists, I hear the hammering. I see more ways in which we come at the world ready to force it into some new shape with our intellect and our wills. O'Donohue encourages us to use mindfulness, to attend to ourselves, to find a more natural rhythm for change and growth. I work in community mental health, a world that can seem full of hammers. In my world, the core process goes like this. Engagement, you find a way to connect. Assessment, you listen, you gather information, you help a person articulate what's going on. Planning, you work with the client to put together goals and a roadmap for how to reach them. And then interventions, you support that person in working toward those goals in a variety of ways. I work in a world where when someone continues to make bad choices, we call it non-compliance and we label it a failing on the part of the person being served. Of course, when things go well, we presume we are the reason things got better. We in community mental health tend to take all of the credit and none of the blame. But our work rarely takes into account any natural rhythm. How well do we look at the symbiosis between the changes that come at us from the outside and the changes we try to cultivate within us? So often, it seems to me like a mirror image. The looking glass in the middle is our lives, and whatever storm is happening on the outside has the potential to rile things up on the inside. Just as despair and brokenness on the inside will often lead people into despairing and broken environments. I've seen it happen how over time, as someone finds more and more peace in their inner world, the outer world, as they perceive it, seems calmer. As people first begin to sense this relationship, an initial reaction might be a lot of focus on the outside world, blaming the environment and people around us for the discord or unhappiness we feel. It's an easy thing to do. We are surrounded by constant examples. And I'm always sharing this statistic. The average number of people we tell when something goes wrong or we don't like something, it's 32. And the average number of people we tell when something goes well, is two. With those numbers, it's easy to see why we might start feeling discouraged about the world. But these are things we know, right? Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. We've all heard that. But there's another great, great quote from Albert Schweitzer, in the same way as the tree bears the same fruit year after year, but each time new fruit all lastingly valuable ideas and thinking 
must always be reborn. I love that quote because it's a reminder that our journeys are not linear. We don't, and maybe we can't, learn something just once. The big things, how to love, how to find peace, how to navigate this life, have to be revisited and relearned in each new season. It leads to that wide continuum of examples of those mistakes we make more than once. An addict relapses, a person with high cholesterol eats another steak, a couple with looming credit card debt goes out and charges a new flat screen TV. I agree with O'Donohue. In that quiet space, a quiet space we must choose to create for ourselves. If we attend to ourselves, if we truly come into our own presence, true change begins. There's a Buddhist saying, to know and not to do is not really yet to know. To know it helps our community to recycle and not to do it shows we don't truly know that this is the right path. To know that exercise helps our body, mind, and spirit, but not to make time for it, means we do not truly understand its importance. Or perhaps we do not know ourselves as beings worthy of this kind of care and tending. We are, all of us, on an ongoing journey toward knowing. We can't hammer ourselves into perfection. It's like the character Ronnie Camareri says in Moonstruck, Loretta, we aren't here to make things perfect. The snowflakes are perfect. The stars are perfect. Not us. Not us. We are here to ruin ourselves and to break our hearts and love the wrong people and, and to die. It's those bad choices that can be good signposts on our way when we haven't been making the quiet space to listen to our inner GPS. So, tonight I'll be crafting my response to the student who felt comfortable enough to share that it's hard for her to feel compassionate toward people who are making the same bad choices more than once. I'll also be responding to the student who shared that he sees himself as a very compassionate person, but he told his friends to stop coming to him with their problems because he didn't know what to tell them. How would you respond to these students? One response could be a long lecture about the nature of recovery and how they play a role in it. But even in that short sentence I just said, do you hear the hammers? I hope I can find a way to commend them for what they shared and to create a space safe enough and welcoming enough that they share even more, that they share it in a way that paints their own truth in front of them. I'd love to create a space where they can take a breath and attend to themselves. That frustration they're feeling is a wonderful signpost. It shows that some inner pieces are rubbing together and creating inner blisters. 
So who will we be? How will we help ourselves and those around us handle the changes that come from without and nurture the changes we want from within? Will we tell our friends not to share their concerns because we don't know what to say to them? Or will we understand the power of simply listening and being present? Will we walk away in exasperation or send away our loved ones who make the same bad choice for the second or tenth or thirtieth time? Sometimes, for our own well-being, we may have to. But is there a way to welcome them into the community, allow them to find peace and stillness among others who have found a healthier path? And for ourselves, will we hammer away at our lives? Is there a way to understand the urgent needs of the earth and our community and to attend to them without becoming humorless? Smile. Take a deep breath. Listen. The better we listen to and attend to ourselves and that map carried within us, the better able we are to attend to others, to gain that happiness Schweitzer talks about, the happiness of seeking opportunities to serve. In her work, Five Regrets of the Dying, former hospice worker Bronnie Ware gathers the experiences she had in her years of working with people as they died, and she summarizes the five most common wishes they had as they looked back at their life. Number one, I wish I had had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Number three, I wish I had had the courage to express my true feelings. Number four, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. And number five, I wish I had let myself be happier. There's a mistake so many of us make again and again. We can go a lifetime not understanding that these things are a choice. A person can live for 90 years, or they can relive the same year 90 times. We're four weeks into our New Year's resolutions. It's funny how Chinese New Year is usually the time a lot of resolutions have petered out. May we all, during these winter months and throughout the year, take the time to breathe, to listen, to consciously bear witness to others' journeys and to our own. May we find ways to be instruments of peace and compassion, no matter what changes we seek, no matter what changes come. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Preacher Girl podcast. You can find more episodes of this podcast on iTunes or at podbean.com. Special thanks to our sound engineer, Stephen Grant Smith, whose music appears on this podcast. 
You can find more of his music at Amazon.com or on iTunes. This is Diane Wright saying, don't forget, feed your spirit, live in love.